scripture reading is Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 399. Again, today's scripture passage is Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Please join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hesinah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodai, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, repaired, opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim and Hashab, the son of Pehath Mohab repaired, another section, in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakiram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy and errant, inspired word. And we now ask for your Holy Spirit to come give us help to illuminate your truth to illuminate your word so that we might respond appropriately with faith and obedience. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, church, as many of you know, we have started a new sermon series. We're going through the book of Nehemiah, calling it Rebuilding the Ruins. That's because the main plot narrative of the book has to do with rebuilding the ruined walls and gates of Jerusalem. Now, 
just to orient those of you who may not be as familiar with biblical history, uh, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are retelling the story of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile. Uh, the, the high watermark of the, uh, of, of the nation of Israel would have been during the reign of King Solomon, the son of David. Uh, and their stories, if you're interested, are found in the books of First and Second Samuel. Then you've got First and Second Kings and also First and Second Chronicles, which is a related a set of books. And they tell the stories of the subsequent kings of Israel, especially after the kingdom divided into two. And the northern kingdom uh, was still called Israel. And the southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as its capital, is more often known as Judah or Judea. And in the last chapter, uh, last few chapters of Second Kings or in Second Chronicles, it describes for us the rise of the Assyrian Empire and their defeat of the entire northern kingdom of Israel. But by God's mercy, the southern kingdom, Judah, is spared. They're able to repel the Assyrians. But in time, towards the end of 2 Kings, the Babylonian Empire rises up, overtakes the Assyrians, and eventually they invade and conquer Judah, destroying Jerusalem, burning its gates, tearing down its walls, and the vast majority of its citizenry are deported to Babylon, which is located in modern-day Iraq. Now, most of the Old Testament prophetic books and books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're all focused on the time period known as the Babylonian exile. They're all prophesying to the people in exile, telling them of one day God is going to move his mighty hand and he's going to return his people back to the promised land. And it's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that tell us that very story to tell us the story of, of just how God did that and who he raised up to lead this effort to return his people to the promised land, which took about 50 years after the fall of Jerusalem. After 50 years later, the first group of returnees come back to, to, to Judah, into Jerusalem, and they quickly reoccupy the city and they rebuild the altar of God so that sacrifices might resume once more. But actually, it's not until... 20 years later, 20 years later, uh, is the temple itself finally rebuilt. Now, by the time Ezra arrives on the scene, and he's there to help recover the law of God, the Torah, so that the will and the ways of God are, are, are once again reestablished among the people, when Ezra comes back, it's, not, it's well over a century has passed since the deportation. And it's actually 13 years later, according to the chronology here, that when Nehemiah shows up. And so he, he arrives, um, and, and, and his story, of course, is about the effort to rebuild the walls and gates so that Jerusalem might function once more as that city on a hill, you know, shining God's light into a dark world. So, friends, that's just a quick summary of the background and the overall plot narrative of the book. And Nehemiah, if, as, as you've probably already seen, and if you're familiar with it, it's a, it's a good example of an Old Testament narrative. It's got characters, it's got plot tension, there's narrative resolution. It's found throughout the book. Except here. <laughs> but not here. In chapter 3. Oh man, if you notice, Nehemiah 3. Uh, yeah, it's a bit different, isn't it? All right, it's a... Uh, 
It's actually sort of an interruption in the narrative flow from chapters 2 to 4. What we're presented with here is uh, an ancient record detailing who built what section of the, of the gates and walls. And it just systematically covers section by section, 40 sections in total. It names individuals or families or other groups identified either by their profession or their hometown. Uh, there, are, there are over 50 individuals or groups named here that took part in the construction and it's, it's been suggested that these verses are actually organized around the seven gates that are situated along the wall, starting and ending full circle with the sheep gate uh, moving counterclockwise. Um, and, you know, I, it might be helpful for you ha- to have a visual of this. So if you look inside your, your bulletin on your outline, turn over to the back, we, ha- we finally have images. <laughs> so uh, there, there's an image there of this rebuild uh, of, of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time. And you can kind of see uh, the, 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 the seven gates and the sheep gate being on the very north. And so as this passage goes along, it starts there in, in the north and it moves along the west side all the way in full circle. The entire rebuilt wall, we're told, uh, stretched out one and, a, one and a half miles long. And it's all here in chapter 3. List it out for you, step by step, detail by tedious detail. And you might be wondering, whoa, whoa, are we seriously going to preach to this? Like, are we seriously going to have a sermon on all of this? And, you know, honestly, I was asking myself the same question earlier this week. I was like, what am I going to do with this passage? There is some dense material here. I mean, let's be real. These are the portions of Scripture we typically skim through. All right, like when you when you when you hit a genealogy, or you you uh, you get to a census list, or a step by step description of the tabernacle or the temple and all the materials and the measurements, you know it's understandable. You begin to to gloss over some of the the, the verses and you kind of speed read right until you get to the next narrative section. This chapter, it's no different. And so it's tempting to just skip on over and just let, let's just go right to chapter 4. Let's just preach chapter 4. But as I said before, we're committed here in this pulpit to preaching through whole books of the Bible. Because we believe, we believe in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where it says, all scripture is profitable for teaching. So that means Nehemiah chapter 3, no matter how monotonous it might get, is still God-breathed and inspired Scripture. So that means there's always something to be gleaned here that can edify us, that can build us up in the faith. Especially to rebuild any of us who have been neglecting our faith, who have been allowing things to go to ruin. I believe there is a word here for you. And so this morning, I want us to consider four truths that we can glean from this detailed record of this rebuilding project. And again, that outline in front of you has those four truths listed for you. So let's consider the first truth that we can glean from this passage. This detailed record of the rebuild, it confirms that God keeps his word without missing a thing. That's the first thing, that God keeps his word without missing a thing. That is an important point when you consider just how many promises God makes in the scriptures. 
The vast quantity of promises leads some to wonder if he's really serious and fulfilling every single one of them, or if he's even capable of doing so. I mean, friends, you know, we, we all know that this, of course, is an election year, and so we're going to be hearing, you know, a lot of candidates uh, issuing all sorts of campaign promises, and, you know, we know the reality is that they're very unlikely to be able to keep all of their promises, especially since many of them require collaboration with other individuals or other branches of government, and we know how collaboration isn't happening all that much nowadays. Now, if a candidate is able to keep 90% of his or her campaign promises, I think we'd all consider that a success. We'd be like, man, that's a pretty effective politician. Well, what if we're talking about God? What if God only kept 90% of his promises in Scripture? Would we praise him for that? Would that be considered praiseworthy? Or would that be concerning? Because for all those promises that he failed to keep, either it, meant, it means that he never meant it, he lied, or he did mean it, but he's not powerful enough to see it through. He can't always keep his word. I think you'd agree that it would be a problem if God doesn't follow through and keep every single promise that he makes without missing a thing. And thankfully, that's exactly what is affirmed for us here in this text. The fact that the construction of every single square inch of that wall from section to section 40 times over until it comes back all the way around to where it started at the Sheep Gate, the fact that it's all covered for us in such detail just goes to underscore that God's promises never fail. God's purposes are never thwarted. He keeps his word even to the tiniest of detail. But, it, you know, it should be said, we need to be clear here that God's word might not always be fulfilled immediately and all at once. I mean, sometimes the fulfillment is gradual. Sometimes it takes time. So while in one sense the fulfillment of his word may have already come in seed form, but perhaps it's not yet come in fruition, to fruition in all of its fullness. But in the end, in the end, we can be sure that God will always bring to completion the good work that he has already begun to fulfill. That's our confidence. And so I'm not surprised if running through Nehemiah's mind were all the biblical promises that are found in the Old Testament Promises like what's found in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 26. Isaiah 44, that's where God uh, promises to his people, to his people who are languishing as exiles far away, in their, far away from their ancestral home. He promises saying, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, which at this time has been destroyed, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and I will raise up their ruins. God promised to rebuild the ruins. Which, of course, gave Nehemiah all the confidence that he needed to move ahead with this construction project. 
And as that last brick was being laid by the wall next to the sheep gate, in verse 32, that confirmed the words of the prophets. God said he would raise the ruins, and he did. At the end of this chapter, we know he keeps his promises. And this detailed record in chapter 3 also confirms that what Nehemiah claimed, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, that God is the one who put this vision in his heart. Look in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, God put this, this whole idea, this whole project, this whole vision in my heart, that, uh, that, this, that this effort, he's saying this effort to rebuild the walls and gates, this is God-ordained. This is God-promised. And now... At the end of the chapter, it's confirmed. That's true. God did give it to him. God did put it in his heart. But of course, friends, when we bring it over to our lives and our experiences, we do have to be careful. We should be careful here. Let's not, let's not quick, so quickly baptize every single inclination or idea that we think has been given to us by the Lord. I mean, just because we think God has placed some kind of task or project on our hearts, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a promise of his. There may be no guarantee that he's actually going to fulfill it. Because if it's not revealed to us in the scriptures as a promise, then we can't assume with the same level of confidence that God is going to fulfill our efforts. In such cases... We just need to move forward with some humility and with a willingness to make adjustments to our plans. But note how for Nehemiah, he wasn't basing his project on a mere hunch, on a mere impression that he felt in his heart. No, he was confident that God had put this rebuilding project in his heart. Why? Because it was directly based on God's revealed word. God said, like in Isaiah 44, that these walls are coming back up. And so that's why Nehemiah had the, the surety, he had the confidence that this project was going to succeed. So let me just be direct here. What I'm trying to say is this. Do we know for a fact that God is going to fulfill our building plans for the land next door? No. We don't know for sure because it's not in God's word. There's no chapter or verse telling us that HCC is going to fulfill its plan to construct the church building next door. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it. There are a lot of things in our lives that we faithfully pursue, even though we don't have a guarantee of its success laid out for us in God's word. We just have to be, like with many other things in life, we have to be humble and careful and good stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us and to make necessary adjustments along the way if needed. But church... What we can bank on, what we know for sure will be fulfilled, are the promises of God that we find in Scripture. So, Jesus, for example, promised that all of his lost sheep, 
know their shepherd's voice and will listen to that voice as it calls them to come home, to come back to the fold. So that means that we can be absolutely sure that if we faithfully proclaim Jesus' word, not, not just from this pulpit, but I'm talking about in your homes, in your workplaces, in everyday conversation with your non-believing friends, if we faithfully proclaim Jesus' words, lost people will be found. Lost sheep will return to the fold. They will hear their Savior's voice, and they will come. We can be sure of that. And if a new building next door helps to facilitate our efforts to preach and teach and proclaim God's word so that the voice of Jesus spreads far and wide across this city and to the ends of the earth, if that's the purpose, well, then yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. But let's just be clear with what promises in Scripture we can be banking on. Trusting that God will keep his word without missing a thing. So that's the first truth that we can glean from this detailed record. God keeps his word. Here's the second truth. This detailed record of the rebuild stresses the importance of strong spiritual leadership. The importance of strong spiritual leadership. Notice with me. Who doesn't show up in this chapter? You don't read of Nehemiah in this chapter. I, I know there's a Nehemiah named in verse 16, but that's actually referring to another brother of the same name. That's not, that's not our Nehemiah. I think his absence in this chapter is significant because obviously he is, you know, the most well-known character in this book, but he is more of a governor uh, in, 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 in this community. But notice who's the first man to step up and to initiate the rebuild. It's the high priest of Israel, the most prominent spiritual leader among them. Let's look at verse 1 again. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the, ta as far as the Tower of Hananel. So the high priest of Israel took it upon himself to get the construction going. And his attention was focused on rebuilding the sheep gate and the adjacent wall stretching out as far as two defensive towers. Now, this, if you're looking at that map, is uh, the gate located on the north side of the city, and it was the, it was the entrance into the city closest to the temple grounds. And it got its name from all the sheep that worshipers would be leading through its entrance in order to bring to the temple to sacrifice. Now, along the one and a half mile stretch of wall, it was this section that was arguably the area of greatest need. Because unlike in other areas, this, this, this section of wall was completely destroyed. That's why, if you notice, in verses 1 to 3, you're going to see the word, the verb here for build, and not the word for repair. Repair doesn't show up until verse 4, and then, and then on, it's all about repairing, repairing, repairing. But in the first couple of verses, they have to build back up. 
And that's because scholars think the Babylonians likely breached the walls on this side of the city, completely demolishing it. And so the city was most vulnerable at this section. That's one reason why Eliashib starts here. But beyond the physical vulnerability at this section of the wall, the high priest, along with all of his brothers, the other priests, they took the lead and they chose this section because of its proximity to the temple. Because this is their way of stressing the priority of the temple. This is how you communicate to everyone that the worship of God is the most important thing. You see, something that you notice later in these verses, if you were to actually, and I do encourage you uh, at some point today, read through this entire chapter. And what you're going to notice is that many people work on sections of the wall that are closest to their home, which makes perfect sense. Some people are going to care the most. They're going to be the most careful in the project. They're going to work the hardest on the sections that have the highest personal stakes for them. But notice how Eliashib, the high priest, prioritized the house of God over his own. Look later with me in verses 20 to 21. In verses 20 to 21, he left, as it, as it mentions here, he left the repair work on the section of the wall near his house. He left it for others to deal with. Because he was more concerned about the walls near the temple, God's house. And that, my friends, is what strong spiritual leadership looks like. Spiritual leaders take the initiative. They step forward. They rise up. And without self-serving motivations, they're, they're there to serve. That's how spiritual leaders lead. Not by compelling people by sheer force. Not, not by wielding their authority in a domineering manner. No, their leadership over you looks to you like service. It feels like they're serving you as they lead you. I mean, just consider, just consider our great high priest and how he led people, how he wielded his authority Jesus stepped up to lead his disciples. How? By getting on his knees to wash their feet with water, cleansing, cleansing them of their filth. And ultimately, of course, by getting onto the cross to wash their souls with his own blood, cleansing them of their sin. That's what strong spiritual leadership looks like. It looks and feels like you're being served. Now, in comparison, that kind of servant leadership stands out in sharp contrast to the leadership exercised by the nobles of the town of Tekoa. Look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The men of Tekoa were willing to build, but their nobles refused to stoop to serve. They were all for receiving the position of a leader, but they refused to adopt the posture of a servant. They were self-serving leaders who knew nothing about true spiritual leadership. And so for those of you, those of you who are currently in a position of spiritual leadership, 
I ask you, what does your leadership look like? Does it look self-serving? Or does it look like service to others? Do those under your leadership feel like you're serving them? And for others, what if God is calling you right now to step up and lead? Every church, every ministry, every project needs strong spiritual leadership. I hope you heed the call. I hope you rise up. I hope you lead. Just make sure that when you do, it looks and feels like service. That's already, friends, two relevant truths that we can glean from this rather dense text. All right, here's the third. This detailed record of the rebuild demonstrates how a diverse body can work side by side to fulfill a singular purpose. A diverse body working side by side to fulfill a singular purpose. If you you do take the time to read through the entire chapter, you can't help but notice just how diverse the people are who work on these walls. But despite all their differences, they come together to finish one task. Notice how you've got cooperation between men and there's women involved. Look in verse 12. Did you notice the mention of the daughters of Shalom getting involved? So men and women. And then you got priests and lay people working together. And then there are all sorts of tradesmen engaged. You have goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants. There are the Jewish locals who, who live in the city working on the walls alongside with non-residents, people com- from coming from surrounding villages and towns. Look, look in verse 2. It mentions men from the town of Jericho, which is up north. They travel down to Jerusalem to assist in the rebuild. So locals and outsiders coming together. And notice as well, you have provincial rulers you know, people of, of authority, six are mentioned for us, and they're just working hand in hand along with the common folks. So bottom line, there are so many people of different walks of life, different backgrounds, different professions, laboring side by side for the singular purpose of rebuilding those walls and gates. Now, this vision of a diverse a unified body working together for a singular purpose. Of course, you know that's carried over for us into the New Testament in the mission of the church. The church being a diverse but unified body of Christ. You got Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12 saying that we belong to the city of the living God. We belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the church. So in other words, we as the church are like the new Jerusalem. And Ephesians 4 says that God has given the church different kinds of people with a diverse set of spiritual gifts and talents. Listen to Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For what? For the building up of the body of Christ. So the goal is similar to what we find in Nehemiah. It's about building things. But in our case, we are building up the body of Christ. And that only happens when a diverse body of people work together using our diverse gifts and talents to build each other up as one body of Christ. And that, my friends, is what I love about our church. 
we have different people of different professions with different spiritual gifts and different natural talents and different amounts of resources. We have three different congregations speaking different languages, coming from different cultures, which means we have plenty of factors that could divide us, that could distract us from the task that God has put before us. But it also means that we have an amazing and unique opportunity to glorify our God by staying united, working side by side, hand in hand, committed to our one gospel mission to both grow and to build up the body of Christ, to make and to mature more disciples of Jesus. Just like the diverse remnant community in Nehemiah's day, who were united and committed to rebuilding those walls and those gates. That's a vision for us. That's the task at hand for us. There's one more truth I believe we can glean from this passage, and here's our, our final point. This detailed record of the rebuild highlights the centrality of our spiritual mission as the people of God. Highlights the centrality of our spiritual mission. Uh, this brings us back to certain details in verse 1 that we skipped over earlier. We'll look back at verse 1. And notice how it says that after rebuilding the sheep gate, they consecrated it. And they set its doors. And then they consecrated the adjoining section of the wall uh, leading up to those two towers. It's that act of consecration, which notice happens only here on this section of the wall, nowhere else along the entire stretch. This act of consecration stresses the spiritual nature and mission of this entire construction project. Because to consecrate something in the Old Testament means that you are setting it apart. You are setting it apart as holy and dedicated to the worship and service of the Lord. That's what it means to consecrate something. So to consecrate this section of the wall nearest the temple where the glory of God resides, this act of consecration was their way of saying that rebuilding the walls and gates is not just for our physical safety. It's ultimately about recovering our spiritual witness as the holy city of God. It's about showing the nations how blessed it is to live in a covenant relationship with the God of heaven. But the problem, of course, is that our spiritual witness is in jeopardy so long as our walls are down and our gates remain burned. The nations are going to look at our city and they're, they're not going to be impressed by the glory of God. No, they're going to walk away with a much lower view of God. That's the problem. So in other words, a well-fortified wall around the city of God speaks volumes about the glory of God. Psalm 48 actually teaches this very principle. Psalm 48, if you, if you want to turn there with me, you can. Psalm 48 teaches this. The mighty, secure walls of Jerusalem we're there to serve as an object lesson, teaching a very important truth about God. L let me read to you just a few verses from Psalm 48. This is verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord 
and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Notice that. Notice verse 3 there. Within her citadels, the, the, the mighty walls and towers, God has made himself known to be a fortress for us. In other words, God has revealed himself to us and to the nations to be a spiritual fortress for his people as symbolized by the physical walls and towers surrounding Jerusalem. And so you can understand how ruined, demolished walls reflect poorly on God. Or just listen later on in the psalm to verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, walk around Zion. That's just another name for Jerusalem. Walk around Jerusalem, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So in other words, people were invited to walk around the city of Jerusalem, walk around Zion, and examine all the walls, examine the towers, and they were to take what they learned about God and they were to pass it along. Pass it along to the next generation. Tell your children about it and your children's children. Tell everyone about how great God is as we observe the greatness of the walls around this city. So the whole point is this. The wall is not just a wall. The wall is a sign pointing to the glory of a mighty God. And this project is not just about securing Israel's physical safety. It's about recovering their spiritual mission to be that city on a hill from which the glory of God brilliantly shines throughout the world. Israel's spiritual mission far outweighs any other priority or goal. And friends, the same principle should apply to us as a church. A church might feel called to pursue any number of projects and initiatives. Establishing a food pantry. Running a daycare or after-school program. Offering ESL classes or language courses teaching Chinese or Spanish. Organizing sports ministries. Mobilizing homeless outreaches. Buying and building new facilities. All of that can be good. All of that can be a good godly pursuit. But if we are not consecrating the spiritual dimensions of these projects and initiatives, then we have completely missed the point. If in the course of our efforts, if we're not setting apart, making central our spiritual mission to be witnesses of the Lord, of his glory and his grace, then I'm afraid our priorities are grossly misordered. 
like the people of God in Nehemiah's day, we need to make clear in all the busy projects and pursuits that we get into as a church that our spiritual mission to proclaim the gospel and to make God-loving and compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations, let's make sure that that takes central place, that that's consecrated and set apart, standing out from everything else we do as a church. Now let me show you how the people of Nehemiah's day did just that, how they highlighted their spiritual mission and let it stand out. Look with me. First at verses 13 to 14. When the people rebuild the valley gate or the dung gate, notice how it says that they, quote, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. In fact, the text uses that same phrase for all the gates that were repaired. Verse 3, verse 6, 13, 14, 15, all except one. Look back at verse 1. And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Notice how there are no bolts and no bars, which means the sheep gate is not locked. It remains open, signaling that the city of Zion welcomes everyone, all nations, all peoples, all tribes and tongues to enter through the sheep gate, to come and to worship the Lord. That is how they kept their spiritual mission central. Because even after all the walls, all the gates were rebuilt, they were high and mighty, keeping them safe, keeping them secure. What they set apart, what stood out, was this sheep gate with its welcoming doors. And as the story of Scripture goes, we know that many centuries later, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, entered the gates of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And in five short days, he was hanging on a Roman cross, dying for our sins. But he defeated our sins, and he defeated death, and he rose again on the third day. And now, the good news is that whosoever believes in him will be saved. Jesus even described himself as a new sheep gate. In John chapter 10, he said, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So church, what this means is that in every effort and every endeavor that we take on, let's make sure to keep central our commitment to preach this very good news and to hold out this invitation to come to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's to be consecrated and set apart as the most important thing in this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a text that at first glance we might just skim over. But thank you, Lord, for, the, for giving us this moment to, to go a little deeper and to see that there are some truths 
that we need to take to heart and that will shape the way that we, even as a church, carry ourselves through the course of this coming year. Oh, Lord, as we see projects and initiatives on the horizon, Lord, help us to keep the gospel. Help us to keep Jesus and his work and his invitation for all to come to him as the most important thing, the most set-apart thing that we do this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.